the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning on the show is Farai Chidea. She is an award-winning author, researcher, and analyst, and also a graduate of Harvard University, magna cum laude, so I'm very impressed with that. She presents a practical guide to navigating today's volatile, fast-changing job market in her new book, The Episodic, Episodic Career, How to Thrive at Work in the Age of Disruption. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Farai. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great to have you. Okay. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show, and you've gotten some great responses. The episodic career, I think probably your book kind of hones in in all of us if we've uh, in, in the career department because it, it covers and you give all kinds of illustrations, examples of people, young people, old people. All of us are affected by these episodic disruptions in our career, but can you tell us exactly what it is and how it does affect us? Absolutely. So we're in a time where the whole American economy and the labor economy is changing. And a lot of people, I've been a reporter for 25 years, and so my job is to talk to people and ask them questions that are sometimes really personal and uncomfortable. And I found when I was doing my other reporting, everything led back to jobs. People's sense of anxiety and dissatisfaction and fear was around what's going to happen to me, what's happening to the American dream. And so I spent years researching this, talking to people, talking to economists, and and basically found out how profoundly the American um, job market has changed where you just can't plan on staying in one career for your whole life. Some people will be able to. It's not impossible. But most people are going to change their careers five to ten times in the, in the course of their life. And I don't mean jobs. I mean careers, like the field that you're in. And so that means you're constantly faced with lifelong learning, building up your skills, and doing all that while you're on this moving train of, you know, companies having downturns and layoffs. Um, so I'm trying to give people a playbook for how you can succeed in this economy, and, and that's really what the point is. Okay, so you're going to tell us, or you do tell us in your book, how to navigate the, uh, really navigate the system. Uh, I just want to step back for a minute because you said, you know, yes, uh, companies are downsizing, they let go of people, not professionals, you know, it doesn't matter where you are on the rung or on the scale at the company, but do people themselves based, I think, on the different, perhaps the millennials, don't want to even stay at a job for more than two years or three at the most. And they're not necessarily let go, but they themselves want to move on. So we, we're including those who want to leave and those who are maybe forced to leave their their professions or their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, some of this is by choice and a lot of it is by necessity. I would argue even for the millennials, because I, I teach at NYU in New York and I'm teaching graduates and undergraduates 
a lot of times when they make the decisions to switch jobs so frequently, it's because they don't perceive a sense of loyalty to an employer because they also don't feel the employer is loyal to them. So they're like, I'm working this amount for this company and they're paying me this little and I don't have benefits. So why should they, in their mind, feel a sense of loyalty to a company that is not providing them with this, the traditional kind of full benefits package and you know um, steady, steady work? A lot of people are doing shift work where you sign up for a shift at, everything from a computer programming, you know, freelance agency to a restaurant and you work your shift and and th- that kind of shift work is a very different sense of job security. So I think the millennials are reacting to market forces and so it's easier to say I'm in control of this, I'm just going to make these changes than to say you know, I probably couldn't find a completely steady job even if I tried, which is a really terrifying way of thinking. Okay, so give us some specifics. Like how? So what do we Absolutely. do? Absolutely. Yeah. What do we do well, when we're in this First of all, position? let me just yeah. define the episodic career briefly. So okay. if the traditional career is like an escalator where you get on, you kind of go up to the top, get your gold watch, and go off into retirement, the episodic career takes two forms. One is like hopscotch, where you're leaping around from profession to profession, using different skill sets that you have, and you're focused completely on that one profession when you're doing it, but then you move on to something else. So my mother was ahead of her time. She was a journalist, and then a medical technologist, and then a, you know, a sixth grade science teacher, and then she retired and went into doing volunteer service with Arboretums. Um, all of that these different careers draw on different parts of her life experience and her education, but seemingly they're unrelated. Like, you know, they, they don't seem to all fit together as a package. And that's kind of more what people are adapting to is that you draw on different skills at different times of your life. And then there's kind of the gig economy model where you have these simultaneous micro careers where I'm a musician slash computer programmer, or, you know, I'm a part-time stay-at-home parent, and then part-time I'm running a small business out of my home. And so, so whether it's that model of going one career at a time but switching around or doing more than one thing at once, I, I, I think that the majority of people are being pushed in one of those two directions rather than staying in one field for the rest of their life. And so there's a number of things we can talk about that will ensure that you have a better shot of getting the most out of whatever path you choose. I'm not saying that there's not choice. There's plenty of choices, but you have to make some decisions about updating your skills and how you search for a job. Okay, well, let's talk about that. How do, let's take the skill set one. What, your mother is the example, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you have lots of examples in your book. But, okay, so what, what do you do? Let's, let's start out. You've been at it. I mean, really take it from the very beginning. You've, you graduated Absolutely. from college. You have a Ph.D., let's, you know, um, and you have a job as a, a professor, and um, you don't get tenure. Well, the thing is, I actually don't have a Ph.D. All I have is a bachelor's degree, and the reason I've been able to teach is because journalism is one of the few fields where you don't have to have a Ph.D. So a lot of times it's important to realize that there's, even in jobs where there seems to be one way of getting to the top, there's also other ways. And so that's why you have people like Bill Gates who drop out of college and they become, you know, billionaires. But you also have people who are leading seemingly much less extraordinary lives, but who are making these incredible changes. Like there's a woman in my book who went from, you know, working 
illegally in the underground economy to being a skilled shipboard welder. She, she sought out the retraining. She took the time to say, I can't keep living this illegal life. I can't keep risking my health. She was also addicted to drugs. And someone like that shows incredible strength in saying, I can change. Even though I'm on the bottom of society, I can still make a change in my life. So whether it's a Bill Gates who just kind of self-trained and became an entrepreneur or someone who's led a kind of rough life, there's always the potential for change. But what you have to realize is if you don't have the skills you need, you are the one who's going to have to get them. You can't rely on any institution to do that. So more and more you have people taking, you know, night and weekend classes. You have people doing online coursework. Um, You know, I myself am taking some online learning about statistics so that I can do a better job with statistics as a reporter. But you can't wait around for somebody to tell you to retrain. That's one of the biggest messages. You can't wait around until somebody says your skills are outdated because by then you're already in trouble. You have to constantly say, how can I grow? What is it that I need to do? Whether it's taking, you know, baking classes, whether it's taking, um, you know, the time to volunteer with an organization that teaches you skills while you're volunteering, you have to be in charge of your own lifelong learning. And that's the number one factor, I think, that people who are successful have, is that they have an attitude that I am going to keep learning. And that gives them some resilience within this job market. I think another thing you're saying, too, it sounds like you're saying, don't get comfortable. I mean, none of us can get comfortable. Uh, There are times of hardship. There will always be times of hardship for all of us at any one period in our life. So be prepared. (laughs) It sounds like a Girl Scout model, but be prepared. So always, you're saying, honing in on your skill set, making sure that, I guess you always, making sure that you are aware of the changes, what in your profession or you have mm-hmm. to... Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's three things. One is that you have to know yourself. So know what you want to get out of the world of work. Some people are flat out concerned about, I want to make the most money I can and retire early. Like I have a friend who's younger than me who's retired. And so that's great. I mean, I wish I was that person, but I, in order to be that person... I would have had to make completely different choices. I wouldn't have been able to have an exciting career that, you know, is a little bit unstable, like journalism can be, but I've, you know, been on Air Force One and traveled to 27 countries, and I got different things out of what I do for work. So first of all, be very clear about what your goals are and what you're willing but to I sacrifice. I have to stop you. Are you a good example? I mean, you're this, I have to say it, I mean, you're a Harvard graduate. You, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you graduate with honors, high honors. We don't all have those, I mean... Absolutely. Skills or... No, no, no. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I guess what, I mean, if I sense where you're going, I'm not a, quote, typical worker. I have a lot more connections and a lot more, um, you know, kind of bonuses in some ways. But my journey in having to stay employed in a very volatile industry means that I have been laid off. I have worked for myself. I have withdrawn money from my retirement savings, which I would never do again, in order to bridge times, you know, in order to stay in the field that I've stayed in, I've made certain sacrifices because I am highly motivated to do it. If I was just going for financial security, I probably would have left this profession a while ago. So I'm not typical, but in this book, I have people who are middle managers, people who are low-income workers, and people who are, you know, include a self-made billionaire in my book. So I'm just saying that everyone along the journey, no matter where you start out, is facing similar challenges. 
All right. And, and, all right. So let's, you know, sort of like a 180 from uh, perhaps your situation would, would be the example that you gave in the beginning um, of the woman who was living on the edge. I, as I understand it, she was a drug-addicted prostitute. And then... Yep. She was a street prostitute. Yeah. So what... Yeah, and she was very analytical, like where she, she was a drug-addicted street prostitute. She decided she was going to die if she kept this up, which, you know, is pretty... Um, um, I think pretty accurate from her situation, probably of an overdose. She detoxed herself. She worked as a chambermaid in the same horrible hotel where she had been turning tricks and then got retrained as a skilled shipboard welder. And the part of it, her story was that even though she'd had a really traumatic life, including starting, you know, sex work when she was still like 13 years old, um, she never gave up thinking that she was smart. She never gave up thinking that she had a mind as well as a body. And whatever, you, everyone has different assets. You know, everyone has, you know, comes with um, a different set of how you've been raised and how much your parents have invested in you, different set of money. You know, I myself, for example, am someone who actually um, helps take care of certain people in my family. I pay expenses for other people. Some people receive money from their family. So you just, no one's life is exactly the same. No one has the same privileges and the same background, but everyone can take an inventory of what they want, what they're willing to sacrifice, and then I think networking is really the key. So okay, so how do we do the networking? I love that. You have to yeah, take an inventory. You have absolutely. to really assess your assets. Really, And I suppose at the same time, your liabilities. Okay, what have I got and what don't I have? Mm-hmm. And how can I? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have, to be, you have to be honest with yourself, you know, about what you have to offer and also um, not just your, your own liabilities, but your perceived liabilities. So a lot of people in their 50s and older are finding that they have a very hard time getting a new job. And one of the things I found out in my research is that if you are, you know, in your 50s and above, you have to get a job more quickly than someone who's younger. So someone who's younger, who's unemployed for six months or a year, is viewed as like, oh, you know, that's just their phase in life. Whereas in your 50s and above, people really start becoming suspicious, I think wrongly, of workers who haven't found a job very quickly. So, so there's also different expectations people have based on your age, on your gender, on your race. Those may not be fair, but if you don't know about them, then you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. I would agree with you. I think ageism is one of the biggest areas of discrimination. Absolutely. I mean, huge. People make all kinds of assumptions once someone turns 50, once they get the AARP uh, magazine. (laughs) But uh, just, yeah. Um, And, and of course, I think that's going to, it's it's more and more because the baby boomers are turning 50 and uh, obviously the aging population. But that's a a big area of, of, how do you overcome that? I mean, you know, okay, you've described it, but let you take the 50-year-old who has Mm -hmm. uh, been out of a job for three months, let's say, um, and people are looking at him and her as if, well, you know, they've had it, you know. So what do they do? Well, I think in that case, and and to a certain degree this is true for everyone, you have to basically do a real 
assessment of your network as well. You assess yourself, but then you also assess your network. And networking can get this reputation as thing something that's only good for white-collar workers or it's only good for people who know everyone. But everyone has a network, which includes your family, your friends, your faith community if you have one. And it's the people on the outer edges of your network that are actually the most useful in a job hunt. So the people who are close to you, they love you, they would tell you about jobs anyway if they found out about anything. But unless you are very open to saying to people who you haven't seen in a while or who you don't feel particularly close to, I'm looking for a job, this is what I have to offer, you're not going to get the most out of your network. So part of it is kind of a question of pride. Do you feel like it's going to wound your pride to tell people that you're looking for a job? If you feel that way, you're missing out on the best opportunities. And there's a lot of research that shows that these weak ties at the outer edges of our circle are the best way to go. And once someone is invested in you and recommends you for a job, you've cut way to the front of the line in evaluations doesn't mean you'll get the job, but right now, with everyone kind of being expected to do extra work and, and, you know, pick up extra tasks at the office, the people who actually do hiring are overwhelmed with resumes. And so you want to really work your network, whatever that network is, to make sure that your resume is coming with a personal recommendation or a personal introduction. And also, like, one thing that people have kind of forgotten about that still works is knocking on doors. A lot of local businesses, particularly smaller ones, you know, they are open to hiring people who literally walk in off the street. And it's worth, again, saying, aside from what I think pride means, that I'm going to literally knock on doors of local businesses. You know, uh, there's that saying, closed mouths don't get fed. And so I think that a lot of times we have this perception about what we should do or what our image should be. And if you don't ask, you don't get. That's a good point. Um, And I wouldn't have thought of knocking on doors. Um, You know, I really did think that was something of the past, but I, I guess as you're saying, it's not. Okay, what about, and here's another group, obviously, that I'm interested in. What about women, women versus men? Oh, How do yeah. they fit into this episodic career situation? Well, women, in some senses, invented the episodic career because so many women are asked to be caregivers, whether it's for children or aging parents or, you know, a spouse, whatever. Women are disproportionately asked to be caregivers for people, and often that caregiving will take up part of you know, their work time or all of it. You know, if you're a stay-at-home parent or a stay-at-home caregiver, you know, you have essentially prioritized that aspect of your life. And so women will go in and out of the workforce in between caregiving or change their hours. And also women are not allowed to negotiate the same way that men are. So if a man has an offer from a rival company, he can much more easily go into his boss and say, hey, I've got this great offer. What are you going to do to match it? Whereas women who do that are seen as disloyal. And it's a really pernicious, gendered assessment of how women have to sell themselves. But again, it's important to know these things. So if you're a woman, you want to go in and say, I'm being viewed favorably by these other people. I believe in this company. I've shown my worth. Here's why it's good for the company if you promote me, or this is why it's good for the company if you give me a raise. You can't just, unfortunately, make a statement 
of fact, the same way that a man would, like, this is how the market's valuing me, because that's just not viewed as, I guess, ladylike. And it's a shame, but again, if you, if you don't know these things, you can act in ways that will, you know, end up undermining you in your own career. Do you have an example in the book of, you know, a specific example in a job where this has happened and... Uh as you're describing well, it? Well, I, I have many examples, not, um, not all of them in the book, but there's, there's basically a lot of academic research by a woman named Linda Babcock, an economist at Carnegie Mellon University, and she wrote a book called Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. And so she has a lot of different stories in it, but I also, you know, um, for example, was talking to a female computer programmer who, was, who essentially was punished for being a really strong, competent woman. And she is she has incredible market value, but she was not allowed to negotiate the same way that men at her company were. And so so definitely it's this is not it, it's something that's been well documented by Babcock and other economists, but it's also something that plays out every day in real life. Is this changing at all? I mean you're a journalist, you've been studying this for twenty years or more. Have we made any changes? Or I mean is this I mean, we have to accept that right now this is the way it is for women, and you have to obviously beware uh, of, but what what changes, are there changes being made in like the big companies, the big corporations? I mean, there are more women who have MBAs, for instance. I don't know what the statistics are in the top MBA schools, but, you know, getting more into the 60-40 range at least, um, male to female. So is it changing? Are there slow changes? And if so, what are they? Oh, yeah. No, there there are slow changes, but you know the the reality is that you know some things are changing in the wrong direction. So, for example, when it comes to women in computer science, there was actually a higher percentage of women getting computer science degrees in the 1980s than now, and so the profession has actually become more gendered than it used to be. And there's a number of different reasons for that, including this social construct that says, oh, women can't be smart at math and science. Um, and so a lot of women themselves end up believing that. And so, so while some things are changing in the right direction, and I think there's more labor protections for women than there have been in the past, other things are, are not moving in a great direction. But regardless of where the world is going, you have to make your own choices. You should be informed about what the world is doing, but you should never base what you're doing just on kind of you know, going with the flow, because sometimes the flow is, is heading in the wrong direction. So what would you tell a college student? I mean, because, you know, you're, you're talking about, we've talked about a lot of things, about being aware and your assets and all mm-hmm. of those kinds of things and, and of the market, um, but, and your skill set, and we, you know, but what do you do? You're a freshman in college, you're going to have to major in something. Is, is that the point where you should become aware of all of this, or are we talking to high school students? Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, since I teach college, I'm dealing with students all the time, and... Um, and I, when I teach my classes, I also I teach everything in a multimedia format. So I'm teaching them audio recording, audio editing, you know, video, slideshow, etc., and web design. And I say to them, whether you're going to be a CEO, a scientist, a journalist, whatever you end up doing, these skills will be useful to you in documenting your work and in understanding how to hire people who do this kind of work if you're in that kind of a position. Um, So I think that for college students, the most important thing 
is no matter what you major in, what you major in is not nearly as important as your approach to learning. So, for example, a lot of people who've ended up being executives have uh, liberal arts degrees, including, you know, Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, who's a billionaire, got a master's degree in philosophy. And, and so you wouldn't necessarily think that someone who ends up leading a tech-driven job company would come from a philosophy background. So it's not about what you major in. It's about the attitude you bring to lifelong learning. Uh, you're teaching your students that. Do you see this as a trend in co- colleges, community colleges? I mean, is this the, are, are teachers, professors introducing this in the classroom? I mean, this concept of you know, lifelong learning? You know, I can't speak for all professors. I definitely, I travel around to a lot of universities and, and give speeches to students as well. And I see, I see, you know, the, the kind of universities I visit doing a good job of that. Can I say that that's true everywhere? Uh, I don't know. I mean, and, and I think that it's the kind of thing where students themselves and their parents have to have a frank discussion about what an education means today. And if you get too deeply into debt, you know, there are people graduating with, from liberal arts undergraduate degrees with $100,000 or more in debt, you have to ask yourself really how you're going to pay that. And so I also urge people, as much as I'm a huge fan of higher education, you can't just let the money run away with you because that hurts the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, I, I could name you several uh, young people that I know who are in exactly that position, way over $100,000. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so they've put themselves in, as you say, I mean, so much debt, uh, very difficult to climb out of that. So that's another. That's a whole other area um, of concern. Um, I always like examples. Give us some more examples from the book, because I know listeners like to hear examples. I mean, we've been talking about different types of jobs, um, but of, yeah. of people, yeah, Yeah, I mean, so again, I want to stress that it's like I go all across the income spectrum. So one person I spoke to who um, really kind of reconstructed his whole life was a guy named Aaron who was an armored security guard, you know, for for bank delivery. So he was one of those guys with a gun on an an armored delivery truck, and he knew that wasn't going to feed his growing family. You know, he ended up having three children with his wife, and at one point he'd gotten laid off. His wife was pregnant with their third child, and he was working part-time jobs and going to school mainly online full-time because he was like, this is what I've got to do to pull my family up. And now he's a a manager at an energy company and he's doing great. But it took years of really kind of double shifting where he he was studying and working at the same time for him to get that new level of security. And that shows a real commitment. And then there are people on the higher end of of the income spectrum, like a, a guy named Justin Dangle who runs a company, Goji, he started. He has started three successful companies, and he started them all before the age of 40. And he showed he he wanted to have a completely different career, but he got the entrepreneurial bug from an internship. And I think that if you are someone who's fortunate enough to go to college, you have to man, you know maximize your internships. You really need to get that practical experience, get out in the world because it could change your life. You know, when you're young, and even once you're older, I, I think that volunteering can sometimes do the same thing. Like if you're interested in a field, and there's a way of volunteering in that field while you keep your job your existing job, that's a great way to sort of shift gears. 
Yeah. Oh, there are so many opportunities for internships, and sometimes I think uh, even parents will make fun of internships. You know, you're, you're not getting paid, so why are you doing that? But there, are, as you say, there are a lot of other reasons for doing, getting in, having an internship and something that you are interested in. Absolutely. Great examples in the book. Um, I, I just want to mention the book, but we only have a couple minutes left. So, again, The Episodic Career, How to Thrive at Work in the Age of Disruption, Farai Chidea. I'm, I'm stumbling over the name. Chida. Farai Chidea, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. The Episodic no, I mean, Career. We can buy that online bookstores everywhere. But, um, Farai, where can we go online to uh, get more information also about you, about the book, but other things that you're doing as well? Absolutely, yeah. If you, can, if you go to my website, farai.com, which is F-A-R-A-I.com, I list information about the book and also some of the other work I do. So I write travel articles for the New York Times. I just wrote a piece that came out last Sunday about traveling by train from Louisiana to California. I write about health and medical issues. There's a lot of different things that I do. Um, But I'm passionate about this issue of jobs because I believe that America deserves the best. We deserve to make the best of the incredible talent we have in this country, and we deserve not to be afraid. Um, But it, it requires us doing some research and some homework. Well, you're an amazing woman, so uh, you're proof you? of all that you're talking about, I have to say. I'm going to look at your travel article. I love taking trains. So, uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, that's great. But really, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great discussion and lots of really good information for all of us. Um, it has been my complete pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning, my next guest is award-winning author and natural health practitioner, Mark Mincola, Ph.D. His new book is The Whole Health Diet, A Transformational Approach to Weight Loss. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. My honor and pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Okay, weight loss, weight loss. We're always talking, it seems to me, I talk a lot about weight loss on the show and lots of guests um, who, everybody seems to have a, a, a little bit of a different hone in on a little bit of a different fix, right? So first tell us the whole health diet. It's very unique. What is it? Um, well, nobody's gotten dieting right yet, Catherine. Every okay. year, more than 50 million Americans set upon the path of dieting, spending 40 billion dollars on those diets, 95% fail within the first year, so number one, we're not getting it right. I've been a holistic health practitioner as a problem solver, approaching different health care issues from a holistic perspective for 33 years. The one problem I decided to take on holistically was weight loss. Never did it before. Figured that that's, that's one possible reason why the success rate is so pathetic. Is this I have to ask you, was this related to anything personal in your own life? I mean, in terms of weight loss, I mean, why the interest necessarily? And I think obesity, obviously, as you say, we, what, 50 million people are overweight and obese? Um, well, to be honest, I've seen tens of thousands of patients over the past 33 years. And it's just so frustrating for me to be observing some of their frustration, their stress, their heartache and pain, their suffering regarding the frustration of dieting. So I decided to try to kind of get a little closer to the problem from a holistic perspective and maybe lend a different view. So what is the holistic perspective? We have a, as you say, dieting is not working. We as a culture have a flawed approach to dieting because it, you know, it doesn't work. But yours is different. Yours is a holistic approach, and you say that that does work. And you've, what, tens of thousands of patients you've worked with or thousands and thousands of patients? Tens of thousands. Okay. That, that, that is exactly correct, Catherine. You know, to me, there's, there's, whenever you think of the word holistic, you think body, mind, and spirit. Dieting is just not managed that way in any way, shape, or form. I say that this, 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 our approach in this particular book is indicative of a lot of different key points. Fat burning versus fat storing, of course, from a dietary perspective. Feeling your emotion outward, feeling them versus feeling the emotions downward with food. So people tend to stuff a lot of emotional issues, a lot of pain and suffering with food. Food is often the result of, and overeating is often the result of stress and heartache and, and whatnot, and emotional uh, toxicity, if you will. So we've addressed the emotional context as well as the dietary context. And I think we're sort of addressing it spiritually as well, helping people to get tuned into their core self, you know, not, not their victim kind of, their victim behavior. Again, eating is often an emotional victim response kind of address that in the book as well. But one of the things I think people often say, you know, they don't necessarily eat, well, let's take the emotional and the spiritual, not necessarily because they feel bad about themselves or because they're depressed or say, you know, something bad has happened, they're in a crisis, but they eat when they're happy too because there's so much food available, you know, so that they're at work and they're always eating and they're, you know, celebrating people's, you know, birthday parties. They come home and they're eating again and they're eating in the car and they just kind of eating all the time, not necessarily because they're stressed, but because the food is there and it's appealing and it's addictive. 
you're absolutely correct about that. I think one of the things we do address in the, in the whole health diet is the varied type of emotional connections that people have with food. And you point out a great, great fact that people don't only eat when they're down, they eat when they're up as well. So I think that the key is they need to kind of consciously make that connection, that food is not just designed to be a medication or not an overcompensation for heartache, heartache or joy. So I think that it's, it's a matter of getting consciously tuned in, getting in touch with some of those possibilities, and learning some strategies as to how to work around them. What about people who talk about uh, fat genes? They can't help themselves because, you know, they, they, it's genetic. They have a genetic problem, not necessarily a hormonal or a thyroid problem, but there's some problem with their genes, and so they kind of don't take responsibility for what they eat and how much they eat. I like to point to J. Craig Venter's research. He was the father of the modern human genome. He did, he's done more genetic research than anybody on the planet. He published a paper back in February of 1991 that was entitled The Death of Genetic Determinism. He said that genetic determinism has been dead for 25 years. You've only got 30,000 genes. The higher probability is about 13.3%. So that, that hand is overplayed, I believe. So in terms of when you say it's overplayed, meaning that we just, well, we just put it, that there's no really no, it doesn't, we still take, have to take responsibility. It, it doesn't really hold water. I think the yeah. bottom line of it is behavior affects the way genes are turned on and off. We recently learned that genes can be actually expressed in different forms. They can be triggered by different nutrients. They can be turned on and turned off. Healthy genes, happy genes can be turned on through behavior, through nutrition, through all kinds of different possibilities. So the key is to learn how to lead a hygienic, healthy lifestyle and be more inclined to turn on healthy, happy genes and turn off the negative sickness genes. That's, that's where I think we want to focus. Okay, so hold our hand. What do we do? A patient comes in to see you is, uh, you know, 50 pounds overweight, let's say. Um, what do you do? How do you well, First of all, we, take, we, we perform an intake. And as you point out earlier, we need to listen. We need to listen to the patient. Tap in, tune in, listen. Hear the whole life story because there's a lot of emotion there. There's happiness. There's sadness. There's patterns. There's habits. There's all kinds of rituals, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to, first of all, take the time to tune in. Secondly, you want to basically describe some of the key points. Number one is you want to make sure you limit your starch, happy foods, you know, the, the, the breads, the pastas, the rice, the sugar products, those comfort foods, as we like to call them, has to be limited to one serving per day. Vegetables, fruits, and lean proteins need to be accentuated. We need to cut down on starch to, to limit it to one serving per day and no more than one. That's key. That's, that's essential. How do you do that when you go out? I mean, this is probably a typical example. You know, you go out to eat. You go out with friends. you sitting at the restaurant and, everyone, you know, you're drinking your wine or having your drink, and this great bread comes along, and you have to not, you know, you've already had your bread in the morning, as you're describing, or your one piece that you're allowed. How do you prevent yourself from joining in and eating the bread with everyone else? And I don't think you should have to. I think it's the other, the other six days of the week. I think we should, in the book, the whole health diet basically describes and explains very clearly that there's an 85% law. You follow the diet about 85% of the time. That enables you a weekend, maybe a Saturday night with, with family, a Sunday brunch where you can actually cut your corners and eat food that you typically would need on any given diet program, any reducing program. So you take one day and you basically enjoy your, 
your food experience, and then you get back to business the next day. Yeah. So it's not that one day after we're worried about it. It's the six days of adherence that take place afterwards. Yeah, I, I think, think that's an important piece some, in your book because I think most people, or many people, uh, feel like it has to be 100%, and they put themselves sort of up there, and then if they go off the diet uh, on the weekend, then they say, well, I blew it, so I blew it for the rest of the week. But, it's, it's, yeah, as you describe in your book, you know, 85% of the time, that's good. And well, my, my theory is that 100% of any, any, any kind of effort that, that's geared on 100% is more inclined to land at zero and hit a wall. Yeah. So I think that you need to kind of be realistic about it. It needs to inhale and exhale. You can't just keep inhaling. You have to kind of breathe out a little bit as well. So it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. It's a balanced thing. I think it's a long term. It's a marathon. It's not a foot race. You know, so many diets that do show some weight loss potential often tend to do that in the short haul. They're very acutely effective for about a month or two, and then people hit a wall and crash because they're kind of crashing and burning. They're working too hard at it. We need to kind of think in terms of a marathon and, and, and kind of think about it as a long term in a way that basically is realistic and kind of wraps around everyday life. Uh, Dr. Mancola, is this a family issue as well? Because, I mean, we're all, you know, we, whatever our family happens to be. Because, I mean, you can look and you, can, you see thin families and you see fat families and then you see those in between. But maybe let's take a look at the, 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 the fat family where the, the parents, um, mom and dad, dad and dad, mom and mom, and then the kids are also overweight. Uh, do you have to deal with the whole family unit? Well, you're absolutely right. I think that that's an important point. We talk about it in the book as well. There have been many different studies that have clearly indicated that it t- tends to, uh, that obesity and, and weight gain and carrying excess weight tend to kind of creep into this kind of family structure. And there's no question about the fact that, as you pointed out earlier, there's certain behaviors and there's certain mores and there's certain approaches to life and patterns that tie into patterns of eating and stuff and that tend to kind of tie directly into the family patterns, family behavior patterns. There's no question about that fact that you've got to talk to many folks at the head of that family about how that family pattern uh, plays out for everybody else in the family. So you definitely want to make sure that you address the, uh, the leaders of that family, the mother, the father of the family, and try to get the word, get the messages of how to lose weight and the importance of maintaining healthy weight to the leaders of the family. So this is what you do. We started out when I was saying, you know, to hold our hand and take us through, and you said first when a, a patient or a client comes in, um, you do an intake. So you're getting all this information about the individual as well as the whole family, right, patterns of behavior. And I would assume also the patterns of what people tend to, to buy in terms of purchasing food and what they know about what's healthy for them and what's not. I mean, I'm one of those people who go to the grocery store and look into people's carts to see what they're buying and then... <laughs> You can you really can kind of tell by you know the food they're buying what they're going to look like or how healthy they are if you look at them or how fat or obese or there's um, definitely a correlation. But there are some things that uh, that you talk about that perhaps I wasn't aware of this. You mentioned that some fruits and vegetables might slow down an individual's metabolism. For instance, I always sure. thought the opposite was true. Well, no, you're absolutely correct about that. It's an important point that's in the book, and it underscores the, the reality of food, that all food either has a tendency to store calories or burn them. And the classifications of food, of course, have to be, have to be looked at in that regard. You take fruits, three-quarters of a cup of blackberries have about eight grams of sugar. Three-quarters of a cup of grapes have about 28. 
So they have like anywhere from two to three times the sugar if you're talking about a high sugar versus a low sugar fruit. Well, sugar, even in a healthy form, uh, requires insulin for transport. Insulin is a hormone that programs the body to store fat. So the more grapes and bananas, the more fat you're likely to store as opposed to blueberries and raspberries. So each food has a different set of properties. Important is to make those known to the dieter. And also, isn't portion control something that we really have to take I mean, a look at? I mean, one banana isn't going to hurt you. It, it, it may be good for you, but six bananas or three bananas, not necessarily so. Or, you know, too many uh, of the high caloric fruits, but if you just have a little bit, um, doesn't that make a difference? I, I think it does. I think the key, though, for that is one banana or even two bananas after having two baked potatoes, three pieces of bread, and a bowl of cereal add up to a tremendously high concentration yeah. of the starch. And starch, of course, is sugar. So just another word for sugar. So high starch foods like bananas, uh, grapes, uh, pasta, uh, rice, bread, oatmeal, cereals, things like that. These are your comfort foods, these high sugar, high starch foods. Again, require insulin for transport and have an affinity for storing calories as opposed to incinerating them. That's an important point. Yeah, and, and I want to address a couple other points that are also in the book. You say nuts, nori, seaweed, which I thought was great for you, under all, and tilapia. The fish can be inflammatory. I mean, I thought all of those, nothing wrong with them. I never knew that those uh, food items could be inflammatory. Explain that. Well, inflammation actually begins as food. The first category of inflammation is that foods basically carry one of six essential fats. There's one essential fat in particular called arachidonic acid. It is a fatty acid that actually converts into inflammatory hormones, leukotrienes, thromboxanes, hydroxylates, and things like that. So what is what we think of as common food produces essential fat. And fats are the raw materials from which hormones are constructed. Well, there's inflammatory hormones called eicosanoids that are built or constructed off things like the, uh, the uh, arachidonic acid, which is highly present in foods like nori seaweed, uh, tilapia fish, as you point out, red meat, dairy products, egg yolks, etc., peanuts. What about, and this is another, I guess another surprise, you talk about some common household toxins can impact thyroid function? You know, as we are, we're all aware of the fact that America is surrounded by toxicity and chemistry is everywhere, of course. So we live in a, I always describe it as we kind of, we live in this toxic soup. We I surely don't. do. Yeah. But there's, there's called P, PBDEs. Those are polybromated diphenyl ethers, commonly found in upholstery, plastics, carpet, outgassing, electronics, and textiles estimated to be present in the bloodstream in 97% of all Americans. They've been found to lower TSH thyroid hormone by as much as 17%, which, of course, increases the risk of hyperthyroid. So there's a number of different chemistries that we're exposed to on a daily basis, also EDCs, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, found in plastic, water bottles, microwave oven, ovenware, etc. So these have been correlated as antithyroid chemistries. So, in other words, our, so it disrupts our thyroid function, which for those, in, in, why don't you give an, a, a you know, description, what does the thyroid do in layman's terms? I mean, why we really need to be concerned with our thyroid function. 
Well, when you think about maintaining a healthy metabolism, a healthy weight, there's two aspects to metabolism. There's one called anabolic, which keeps your tissues firm, well-muscled, and strong and healthy and vibrant. Then there's catabolic, where you start to break down, you carry belly fat, and you kind of work into less efficient chemistry. And those two distinctions are pretty much carried off by, by what we eat, what, we, what we're exposed to, by the chemistries of our body. So the thyroid is responsible ultimately for those chemistries. So your thyroid is a gland that's responsible for determining your metabolism, your weight loss, your health, your efficiency for energy, etc. So a lot of these chemicals that we're talking about that are found in water, plastic water bottles and electronic products, etc., have the ability to disrupt that. So what do you do? I mean, we're here. I mean, we are, do we have to throw out? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you, you listed many things that are certainly in my house, as you, and you talk about, I mean, common household toxins. What do you do? Go home and just get rid of all this stuff, and we're not going to get rid of our computers and our cell phones and, and all of, of that, are we? Um, what, I think what, the point is we, we've yeah. got so many points against us in terms of obesity. The growing rates of obesity are, of course, alarming. They're absolutely stunning. One CDC report estimates that by the year 2030, we'll have as many as 13 states that are clinically obese in America, which is just unheard of. The numbers are just advancing forward rapidly beyond our ability to control them. Therefore, with the problem so great, I think we have to work extra hard at learning more, at practicing, at working, at, at working with our foods, at learning and becoming more enlightened and inspired to work with our foods, exercise, and to take care of business in the ways that we're capable of exercising our powers because there's so many areas we don't have the power. I think one of the keywords that you said, I, mean, I don't know if you said this word, but it kind of describes what you're saying is informed. We really have to be informed and make sure everybody is informed. It's sort of like the stop smoking thing. I mean, it took years and years and years for people to, to really I, to incorporate that in, in our minds that you know, smoking is not good for us, and I guess it's kind of, it seems to me the way you're describing it, the same thing with food. We have to be informed. Obesity, and I think one of the things in your book, which is also important, is not, obesity isn't just being fat and it just affects your physical body, but it affects our minds. And if we're going to be obese, uh, then we are not going to be able, our minds don't work properly either. I mean, we don't think as well. We aren't, uh, and I think that's, a, a, that's kind of overlooked sometimes, I think. We're also talking about increasing the risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, lung disease. We're talking about $150 billion a year just based on overweight issues that are correlated with health care costs. So it's a mental problem, it's a physical problem, it's a global problem in the body, it's a holistic problem, which is why the whole health diet chooses to inform the reader in a transformational approach. I think we do have to inform and inspire people, educate them, cover all the bases, and I think, you know, a little bit of knowledge is the key here. I think, you know, knowledge and wisdom are power in this case. And I think we're empowering readers to really cover the whole base, to cover all the bases, I should say. What would you say is the worst kind of resistance that you see or what kind of resistance? I mean, people say, well, you know what, I can't do anything about this. I mean, you know, this toxic soup that I just mentioned is, what am I going to do? You know, I'm, I, so I might as well just do what I do. And, and people have kind of had this kind of a give-up attitude because we are getting worse, as you say, as you point out. How many states did you say where we're morbidly, that we're going to be morbidly obese or the states, 13? 13. The yeah. equivalent of 13 states. So 
my, my theory about this whole process is information is the key, education is the key, enlightenment is the key. Bringing people the information should inspire them to really get involved, to learn as much as they can, and to roll up their sleeves in areas that they're capable of making a difference. And to, first of all, acknowledging consciously that there is a problem, a very real problem, a growing problem, a holistic problem, if you will, that is covering a lot of, a lot of our bases in terms of mental health care and physical health care. It's not going to go away. We need to face it, confront it head on, and have good strategies and plans and to, again, inspire the learning process and to inspire the education process so that the better informed the public is. And they're not informed. A lot of the, a lot of the um, sad weight loss programs don't discuss any of these issues at all, which is why the whole health diet was such an important uh, issue for me to take care of. I sometimes want to, I have to hold back, obviously, but I'll be in a public place and watch a, a parent or a, a babysitter or whomever's taking care of, a, of the child, like giving them a soft drink, you know, that you just filled with sugar, just, you know, and to either they want them to be quiet or they're using it as a pacifier. Uh, and I, I really have to fight the urge to say, please don't do that. But obviously I don't say anything. But it, it, it's really kind it's of frustrating. frustrating. There's no question about it. It's frustrating and it's heartbreaking to see that. And you say people aren't informed. But how can they not be informed? I mean, you go online, you watch television. Um, you know, it seems to me people are, we're always talking about losing weight and dieting. And, and, and now in, in New York State, in some restaurants, you have to put, you know, how many calories are in a, 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 an item of food. Um, which is kind of like, whoa, you know, when you see that, um, that's good information. Uh, but it is. I think when you, when you, when you inform them at all, it's, 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 it's a good thing, but I think more, just more pointedly, when you inform people about how they can start a process that has a sequence of possibilities, you begin with X, Y, and Z. You move through a sequence, you, you walk them through, you talk them through a plan, and you essentially construct a map. That's what the book does. The whole health diet basically helps the reader to construct a map where they can actually walk through the sequence and evolve through the process and become better at understanding it and engaging it and putting it into practice and ending up with positive results. I think that's the key is you need to walk the reader through the process and set up a mapping sort of scheme for them to actually know what to do, how to do it, and give it a, I always say give it a 21-day cycle. There's a 21-day challenge in the book that we talk about to follow the program that we walk them through to align themselves with a successful weight loss program in a way that nobody's ever done before and just give them 21 days to to see if they can get some traction. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that's important. I'm glad you uh, mentioned that because the book is very, very specific in terms of what to do, how to do it, how to go through the weight loss program, and then you have very specific, specific examples of, of uh, patients who have done it. So um, we only have a couple minutes left. The Whole Health Diet, a Transformational Approach to Weight Loss, Dr. Mark Mincola. Uh, so Dr. Mincola, so online, where can we get more information? We can buy the book uh, online, bookstores everywhere. But, uh, sure, Amazon.com, and I have a website. It's Mark, M-A-R-K, Mincola, M-I-N as in Nancy, C-O-L-L-A.com, MarkMincola.com. MarkMincola.com. Well, you're doing a great, I guess what we call it a service, right? So we've got to get the word out there. Thank you so there. much, Kathy. Thank you so much. Um, 
We are going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Mark Mincola, Ph.D., and his new book is The Whole Health Diet, which you can buy online, bookstores everywhere. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 